Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. That's the time we will spend today. As we think about Jesus, our high priest, I want to put a couple questions in your mind as we start. First is, when did you last really rejoice that God's grace and mercy and very presence was readily available to you? When was the last time you stopped and thought about it? Think about it this way. Did anyone wake up this morning and burn a couple of handfuls of flour over a fire? I will confess that I set off the smoke detector this morning cooking an egg. As a professional chef, that's embarrassing. It wasn't particularly worshipful. Did anybody wake up and pour out oil or wine and say a prayer to the Lord this morning? Did anybody find a particularly disagreeable goat and lay their hands on it and then shoo it off to Windsor? <laughs> Sorry, we have Windsor people here. I had to include them. I'm willing to bet the answer to all these things is no. We didn't do any of those things. We didn't wake up and offer sacrifice. We didn't wake up and kill something so that we can draw near to God. I have been convicted over the past week that I have taken my ready access to God and His nearness for granted to my detriment and to my despair sometimes. So keep the question in mind. Do I rejoice in God's ready nearness that's been made available to me? And the second question, does my life look any different because He's near? First, once again, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. It is, uh, I confess, going to be a challenging morning. I lay all the words that you have blessed me with here at your feet, that you would be honored and glorified. I pray that your word and your character would shine forth in the midst of this time. Pray that you would help us to rejoice that you have made yourself near and available to a people who would not seek you on their own. And I pray that we would look different because you've made us so. And the world needs to see it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in studying about the priesthood, there's two places that you go in the scriptures, right? The first is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the first five books that a lot of people really struggle with reading, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? If you've tried to read them and you've fallen short and you stop about the time we get the blueprint for the tabernacle, I appreciate that. I've done the same thing. But the, but the Pentateuch is where we begin to see the priesthood. We see God define what it would look like and what it would mean to his people. The second place we look, and we'll see it today, so put a finger in the Pentateuch and put a finger in the Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is the only place in the New Testament that talks about Jesus as our high priest. And so we will reference Hebrews heavily. Hebrews, I will confess, is the most challenging book personally for me to study. I have never gotten an opportunity to preach and study through Hebrews. And I think God's blessing is in that because it is a challenge in a lot of places. We will cover a lot of Hebrews today, though, and so get ready. I will try to talk fast. If I go too fast, someone throws something, and we'll go from there. The title of priest is pointing to one who offers sacrifice. That was what that office originally meant in the Old Testament and in the New. Hebrews 5.1 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. 
As you read through the Old Testament, you see the heads of households, the families, the patriarchs, offer sacrifices for their family. They wanted to keep their relationship with God well, and so they offered sacrifice. You see Abraham do it. You see Noah do it. Isaac, Job, Jacob. Job is my favorite. He offers sacrifices just in case his children may have sinned. That's a man who cares about his family and is trying to do things right. Just in case they might have sinned, I'll offer a sacrifice. They offer sacrifices as part of their worship, part of thanksgiving, part of entering into agreements with God as atonement for their sins and for many other reasons. But we see sacrifice in the hands of the priestly heads of households over and over again in the Old Testament. When God calls his nation Israel out of Egypt and frees them from slavery, something changes just a little bit. The role of priest goes from heads of households to an office. God calls forth the nation of Israel and he tells them, I bore you on eagle's wings, I brought you to myself. Now therefore I will be your God and you will be my people. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God, desiring to show his character to the world around him, would call forth a people for himself that would look different, that would offer up the sacrifices that he desired. And even in the midst of that holy nation of priests, we see God call a unique family, beginning with Aaron and his sons and the tribe of Levi. God describes a role and a responsibility of a mediator between himself and the nation of Israel. It was a calling that was a high honor. It was a calling that was dangerous. And it was a calling that carried a great amount of power, prestige. But it was a lot of rules to follow. And there was a lot of responsibility in the hands of the priests. It was something they took very serious. Numbers in chapter 18, verses 6 through 7, God says, Behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among, among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. At that time it was the tabernacle. And you and your sons, Aaron, you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and within the veil. We'll talk more about that as we go. And you shall serve. I give you your priesthood as a gift. And any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. The priesthood was a serious calling. It was a serious responsibility. And it was a life and death matter to the people of Israel. Priests were appointed to God for a two-way ministry, God to Israel and Israel to God. Priests were divinely called mediators, arbiters. My wife and I talked about all the different words to use to describe that relationship. They represented men before God as they strove to keep his commandments and uphold man's side of their agreement. God didn't have to worry about his side. They communicated God's laws, their, his edicts, his exhortations, his blessings. Here's just a short list of the duties and the responsibilities and the power of the priest. I've done the work of summarizing the Pentateuch for you. You can thank me later. The priests were responsible for judging civil disputes. They were sort of a judge, a civil court in the nation of Israel. They were there to assess impurity and disease among the people. There are actually chapters on priests assessing mildews and leprosies and things that might contaminate the nation of Israel. God wanted his people to be healthy. 
They were called to burn incense in the tabernacle and temple worship. They were called to collect taxes and offerings to keep the tabernacle, setting it up, taking it down as the people would move. And later they were called to manage the temple. They were called to take care of the altar and the lamps and the showbread and all the things that God said, this is part of my worship. They were called to prepare the holy things for each day's journey. As the nation traveled through the wilderness, they raised and lowered the tent every day. I don't know if you've been camping. That's a big deal. The tents we have these days are easy. I grew up using Salvation Army tents for Boy Scouts, and it took four guys and, frankly, a lot of cursing to get the tent set up. I don't think they did that, but maybe. They were there to maintain the sacred fire, to blow the trumpets when it was time to move. And the big three, in my opinion, these are the ones that I feel like matter most. The priests were called to bless God's people. In number six, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. And you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The priests were responsible for blessing the people. They were that mediator of God's blessing. They were there to teach and judge the people. Moving now to Leviticus, you are to distinguish priests between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken through them, to them by Moses. So we've seen the priests have judge duties, doctor duties, teacher duties. And finally, the priest's job was to offer sacrifices. Lots and lots and lots of sacrifices. Offerings of fellowship and thanksgiving, guilt and restitution, offerings for peace, and sacrifices to atone for the sins of the nation. Depending on how you grew up, I think you can overlook the office of a priest as that mediator or arbiter of God's grace. I came from a tradition where the priest was very important. The priest is who dispensed God's grace to people. And we didn't jump through as many hoops as the Israelites had to, but we certainly had our set of hoops to jump through to receive God's grace and forgiveness and mercy. I think we take for granted just how much they had to go through to have God draw near. As you read through the Old Testament and see what it required to have God abide amongst his people, you marvel at what they went through. The amount of resources and time that it took to have God in their midst. The amount of animals that died to shed their blood for the forgiveness of sins. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness in the Old Testament times. Think about what that relationship with God would look like were we still in that and had to wake up every morning and offer sacrifices, that we had to have priests among us to draw near to God for us, to garner our forgiveness and our salvation and our atonement and have a right standing before God even for a short time. All those rules and regulations and sacrifices and ceremonies allowed God to abide with his people who needed someone to stand between them. But, and that's a favorite word in Scripture, that relationship and that distance and that transactional grace, that all changes 
with the advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Do you rejoice in God's ready nearness and grace? If you do, you have Jesus to thank for it. Let's take a look at the high priest who made it possible. The book of Hebrews is the only place in Scripture that calls Jesus our great high priest, and it does so over and over again. Hebrews goes to great lengths to exalt Jesus above everything that came before him. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's a better means of communicating than the prophets who came before. Jesus is worthy of more honor than Moses. And Jesus overcomes all the shortfalls of every priest who ever lived before him. The title and the office of high priest that he is given is about the only commonality he holds with the priests that came first. Because he far outshines every one of them. <clears throat> but let's talk about what, how Hebrews describes him. Jesus was called and sworn to by God the Father. And that's important to remember. We're going to start with his priestly calling. In Hebrews chapter 5, the author writes, No one takes the honor of high priest for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Likewise, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as he also says in another place, You are a priest forever. The author of Hebrews points out that Jesus' calling as high priest was directly from God, and that is important because Jesus doesn't fit the mold of the priest that came first. We'll talk more about that here in just a minute. David, who wrote the Psalms, saw in advance that a priest was coming who would look different than the ones that he knew before. And that difference makes all the difference. Grace is readily available because Jesus was chosen by God to make it so. Moving on, Jesus is eternal. These are the differences between him and the priests that came before. Like all men, priests of old had a limited lifespan. Depending on how well they did their job and how well they obeyed their calling, some of their lifespan was very, very short. But their time in service was limited by how long they lived. The baton of service would then be passed on to someone else, maybe someone who was more faithful, maybe someone less faithful, but there were interruptions in service, interruptions in the relationship with God and his people over and over again. Hebrews 7 rejoices that in Jesus we have a high priest that is eternal. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. It's a good excuse. But he, our Lord Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always lives to make intercession for them. Grace is near because Jesus is always there. Let's talk for a moment about obedience and faithfulness. If you read the Old Testament, you see that priests throughout the history of Israel faltered and failed in their obedience over and over again. At the very beginning, two sons of Aaron named Nadab and Abihu decided they would bring fire before the Lord that was not authorized by God, and they died almost immediately. Priests in the Old Testament took their job very seriously, and when they didn't, the wrath of God fell upon them with consequences that was death. 
priests throughout the Old Testament, all the way through Caiaphas, who condemned our Lord to die, failed in their faithfulness and their obedience to God. Hebrews reminds us that Jesus' faithfulness was of a different caliber. He compares Jesus' faithfulness with Moses, who was faithful in all God's house. If we look outside of Hebrews, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, we see that Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The faithfulness of our Lord to his calling is unmatched in history. It's part of what brings him his much-deserved glory and provided for our very undeserved salvation. Grace is available because Jesus is faithful. Moving on, we'll see that there, one of the big differences between the earthly high priests and our Lord and Savior is Jesus is near to the Father in ways that men could never be. Hebrews goes to talk about the high priest ministering in a copy of the heavenly places. The best facsimile that they could build, but still far distant from the heavens where God dwelt. Jesus rose to be seated at the right hand of the Father. He sits right next to the King. He's entered into the heavenly places and appears before God on our behalf. I don't know if you've ever had to appear before a judge. It's a daunting time. It's a daunting experience. I have an uncle who was a great judge, and he scares me just to go to dinner with. I only had to go before him once with a speeding ticket. He made fun of my tie. Um, we have an arbiter who sits at the right hand of our judge and advocates for us day after day after day. Every time we sin, he is there to say, I covered that one too, Lord. My grace covers all of those things. Grace is ours because we have a mediator at our judge's side. Hebrews gets into deeper and deeper water as you read through it. As you go through chapter 7, we start seeing that Jesus had a unique priesthood that ushered in a unique and new covenant and a better covenant. As you read through the Old Testament, you see that the agreement entered into by Israel and God at Mount Sinai was desired or designed to bring the people into contact with God. They would be his people. He would be their God. But it, it never achieved the results that God desired for it. Hebrews says, If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, that first covenant, that way of sacrificing, that way of bringing God near, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? One that's different, one that's not from Levi, but one that's from a different place. Remember when I said earlier that it was important that Jesus be attested to by God the Father? It's because he was not from the line of Levi. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Without God's direct Testimony, he would never have been allowed to be a priest in any way, shape, or form. But God attests to his priesthood, and Hebrews tells us that there's a change with him. 
When there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Again, reading from Hebrews. For, one of the, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, that is the tribe of Judah, from which no one has ever served at the altar. The normal priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood, did not do what God desired. So God said, I need to do something new. On the one hand, again in Hebrews, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness. These are Hebrews' words, not mine, and they sound harsh. A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Amen. Jesus' priesthood on our part changes our relationship with God the Father from legal and transactional to relational. No longer do we have stone tablets to see God's law. It is written on our hearts and on our minds if you know him. He's the mediator of a new covenant which allows God to draw near. Jesus became the perfect sacrifice. While the high priests and the priests who came before him had to begin their day by offering sacrifices for their own sins, Jesus never did. The high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. But Jesus didn't have that need in Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have this high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like the high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins, and then those for the people. Since he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. Grace is ours because Christ died on our behalf. No longer do we need to offer the sacrifices that would allow us to be atoned for. No longer do we lay our hands on an animal and let him bear our guilt. We have a Savior who did that in our behalf. I think the ultimate contrast and the sum up, the joy for this Advent message shows up in Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 11 through 14 describes this contrast that I've been trying to paint for you this way. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified if that does not bring a smile on your face this morning then it's because my voice has put you to sleep <laughs> think about that for a moment by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified if you want a practical application, next time you're in an argument with your spouse, tell her or him, I have been perfected. <laughs> then run. <laughs> I 
The work of Christ has made us perfected before God, the Father. When he looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of the Savior who died on our behalf. He sees the propitiation that was made for us that takes his wrath and diffuses it. He sees a beloved son in the place of an enemy and a sinner. That is a reason for joy in this Advent time. Jesus' sacrifice took the judgment, punishment, and the writ of our condemnation, and it nailed it to the cross. His death took the results of our sin, and it buried it deep in a tomb to be left behind when he rose in triumph. And as he rose to return to his Father, with him rose our hopes and the promise of life restored and of life eternal. Do you rejoice that God's grace has been brought near? The cost was immense and one we never could pay on our own, but Jesus did. So the second part of the question I started us off with, does your life look different because of this? Hopefully I have given you some things to think about and to rejoice upon and to bring a smile to your face. But does life look different because of it? What does Jesus' priesthood mean at the end of the day when we leave this building, when we go back out into the world that's still broken and still needs him so desperately? Believers, we have help in the time of trouble and temptation. When we fail, we have his mercy. And we will fail. And we will need it. Hebrews 2.18 says, Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Has anyone been tempted yet today? If you haven't, please come talk to me later. I'd like to know how you make it. He is able to help those in time of temptation. Jesus faced the evil one himself in the wilderness and faced all the temptation that he could lay on him the devil could lay on him. I have not yet had the misfortune of meeting the devil face to face. I've met some pretty bad people, but never the evil one himself. I've never had to face that level of temptation, but Jesus did and knows how to overcome it. Do you call upon him when you're tempted? If you don't, you are missing a blessing of your high priest. John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, just in case, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He stands at the right hand of the Father, helping us there, and he's ready to help us here. We have help in the time of need. Once again, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast to our confession, our faith. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Some of you know that this has been a challenging week for me. 
I won't go into too many details because I don't think I can do it without breaking down in tears. And I've cried enough this week. We have a high priest who knows what we go through every day because he went through it. Jesus wept over the loss of loved ones, just like we do. He mourned the sin and hard-heartedness of the world as he saw it around him, just like we do. Jesus was angered by unrighteousness. Hopefully we are too. Jesus overcame all those things while he was here, and he overcame all of those things for eternity. We have a high priest who knows what we go through. We do not have to go through it alone. There is power in knowing you have someone who understands where you're at. I live a lot of my life keeping everything that's going on in me inside to my detriment. We have a high priest who is there who understands, who is willing, willing and ready to walk right beside us all the way through every trial and temptation and hardship and heartache that we face. Draw near to him because he's there. And then finally, in Hebrews chapter 10, let me read one more passage. Chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, three points, three things that we should do in response. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near with a true heart. Jesus has allowed us to draw near to God himself. Why on earth don't we? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Bless you. Do you hold fast to the hope that is the only hope that we have in this world because he is faithful? Why not? And finally, practical for one another, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do we lift each other up to love and good deeds? Do we respond in love to the work that God has done in our lives? We continue to live in a world that is broken and dark and needs to see Jesus on display in whatever way God has blessed you to put him on display. Some of you are evangelists. I marvel at you. God bless you. I'm looking at the Braddies right now. Some of you have no problem meeting a stranger and inviting them within five minutes to study through the book of John that they might see Jesus put on display and be saved. Some of you are servants. Some of you know how to bake bread and can bring it to someone's house so that they can be blessed by an act of service and a word of kindness. Yeah, some of you have had the bread. Some of you are gifted to serve in a church body, take care of kids. Bless you. Some of you are givers. 
bless you. The point is we are gifted to serve to put the heart of God on display to the world around us who needs it and we are called to do so. Friends, as this Christmas season gets further in, would you think about how God would call you to stir someone around you up to love and good works? Would you think about how to give voice to the hope that you have that you know someone right now who doesn't? Would you rejoice that God has drawn near when you could not draw near to him yourself at a great cost? But he gave it freely because of his love for us. Would you join me in prayer as we close our time? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the glorious truth that you loved us so much that you would draw near to us, that you would take the form of a man, that you would be born of a virgin, that you would dwell on this dark earth, that you might bring a point of light that would grow and fill every corner and every heart that allows it in. Lord, I thank you that you have made grace available, that we no longer have to draw near through the blood of bulls or goats. We no longer have to keep fires burning to offer sacrifice to be yours. That you have taken all that work upon yourself, Lord Jesus, and made it possible. Lord, would you fill our hearts this Christmas season with a hope and a joy at the truth that you loved us first and loved us best. And that we might share that with those who need you most. I ask these things in your precious and matchless name, Lord. And God's people said, Amen. Merry Christmas, folks.